0: So there we go. We're sure. recording this as a as a podcast uh, that's done on Clubhouse that we can put out on my Substack.
1: Which yeah. Is, well, let's let's see if it works.
0: Yeah. So I I love your combination of things that have happened in the rest of the world that we should all be looking at. Interesting links and s- snippets of here's the key thing. What really struck struck you in the last week as something. Anyone in Australia or New Zealand should should keep an eye on from the rest of the world.
1: Well, I I think the 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 thing that became news here was this question of genocide and whether what is happening in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs can be regarded as genocide and what the implications of doing that. Might be. I mean, last week I did a I did a piece in that in that off bulletin specifically about genocide and went into the history of of the word, which really only emerged. It only became concept at the Nuremberg trials in, in, in the late 1945 1946. And so it isn't. It, you know, it hasn't been in a sense on the statute books as it were that long. And in, in most places, it isn't on the statute books. There is a UN concept. So, that, you know, the fact that that became a big issue this week in New Zealand, I think, is extremely interesting. And I. I think it is entirely understandable, given the New Zealand government's position at the moment, that it was very cautious about using the word genocide and in fact arranged for the word genocide not to be in the parliamentary motion that was ultimately passed about human rights violations in Xinjiang.
0: Yeah, it was like an exercise in diplomatic mind clearing. <laughs> you know, they had to uh, find that word genocide, get it out of the uh, motion in parliament, get um, the Greens and, uh, and the ACT Party to agree to it. Get it into Parliament, where it was discussed, and a fairly, fairly serious, you know, series of words were used along the lines of, of very serious abuses of human rights. And we've heard this morning from, the Chinese Embassy that they are un, very unhappy with what New Zealand's come up with, but it's in tune with the general direction of of how the government has, moved the general discussion and mood along. Further towards the American and the Australian uh, point of view, but not quite as far. So a classic case of, right. of sort of tailing along behind, but not too far
1: behind. But I think I think also there's the there's a there's a Chinese concept or Chinese diplomatic concept, if you like, of being able to being able to identify the things that we're not going to agree on, to say what they are, and then not to touch them again. And that's very much been Jacinda Ardern's approach, and it was pretty much what. Nanaia Mahuta, the, the foreign minister, said recently when she laid out in quite some detail the areas of sensitivity with China, which which at least you know flags up to China what what we think the issue what New Zealand thinks the issues are, but doesn't do it in such a provocative fashion.
0: No, unlike the Australians in the last ten days or so who have come out and said that they're now not quite preparing for war, but talking about it. Uh, we had Peter Dutton, the um, Immigration Minister, who many think will become the Defence Minister there, come out and say that, you know, that there is some, there are the winds of war building there. A very senior public servant came out and said the same, someone who's likely to be the, the head of the Defence Department in Australia, essentially saying Australia now needed to pivot away from... Uh, focus being focused on terrorism and particularly the Middle East, and Australians are pulling out of Afghanistan as well, and focusing on China and uh, Southeast Asia. And Australia is looking to beef up its bases in the Northern Territory. And in the last week, we've seen Australia decide to revisit the sale of the uh, port in Darwin to a
1: Chinese yeah. owned company.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm still amazed yeah, it exactly. actually happened.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. am I'm, I'm. I find the Australian approach generally quite inexplicable, other than as a as it often does, running on the coattails of the Americans, particularly as it did under Trump. I, I think at some point there's got to be some sort of intelligent rapprochement with, with, with China in this. I mean, we've moved, the, the West has moved far too much of its industrial production to China to, to not be engaged with China in this way. You know, China's too significant. And of course it's been, you know, it has an expansionist mindset and it has a mindset that is, that is aiming at Taiwan and we see what it's done with Hong Kong. But I just, uh, you know, this talk of actual conflict and how horrific that would be is 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 too strong, I think. You know, it's, it is crazy to use that kind of language.
0: Yeah, it's always surprising when you hear the Australians do this. I, I learnt this lesson when I went from working uh, in covering politics in New Zealand for Reuters in the early 1990s, and then I went to the press gallery in Canberra. And for the first month or so, I was, I was in complete shock at how aggressive the politicians were in public, particularly with each other, where you know no holds barred, hmm. you know personal personal abuse, the whole thing. Australian politics has 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 have much shi- the politicians there have much sharper elbows, and I think that carries over into the way they they talk diplomatically. But the one thing I think a lot of New Zealanders aren't aware of, and which I think underpins the Australian quite quite bullish, confident, you know strident attacking of China is that Australia has the one thing in the world that China really needs that it can't get anywhere else, and that's iron ore. And it's amazing. The price of iron ore has at record highs in the last week or so, and it looks like the Australian government is going to make around about $60 billion in extra taxes over the next four years mm. because of this iron ore boom. And the the reason the Australians are quite strong in this is because they sell enormous amounts of iron ore to China, who then turns it into uh, steel, often with Australian yep. coal, and uses that steel to um, boost its economy whenever it's in trouble by um, pumping out you know seventeen airports in three months or uh, mm. you know a whole mm. bunch of. No, it's
1: a, it, it is it is leverage that we just don't have. I I, I was also struck, and it's in my spin off piece this week, Bernard. The the importance of you know if you're thinking about where we're going with China the importance of Taiwan can't be under, overestimated mm-hmm. and the point that the economist made in a very good piece this this week was the strategic importance of Taiwan as the producer of most of the world's critical semiconductors you know the the, the ta- Taiwan is, is not necess- you know, not necessarily you know getting the level of international support that that it, perhaps it it needs to stand up to China at the moment but it has you know vast economic and strategic importance on that basis
0: yeah, TSMC are a fascinating company in that they've able to dominate that market, which is growing so fast. And but they've managed to diversify some of their risks around the world. They're quite involved in China itself, and obviously they've got factories in um, the US. And in fact, one of the reasons there's been such a shortage of chips, which has shut down a lot of production lines of cars, and is now moving on to some of the other production lines for TVs and other electronic gear is that there were a couple of factories in America that got badly affected by the ice storm in Texas Mm -hmm. a few few weeks ago. And TSMC is one of those that spread itself around the world. It's still vulnerable, but the problem for the Chinese is if they decide to do what they've been threatening to do for a long time, which is invade Taiwan, which would be pretty disastrous, they really do shut themselves off from the rest of the world and also disrupt supply chains for the entire. T- yeah. So
1: why t- push it? Why push them? Why push them that far? Yeah. You know, I thought it was very interesting, uh, Bernard Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, who is a himself a, a Sinophile and speaks speaks Chinese Mandarin, plus Helen Clark and also the for, the other former New Zealand Prime Minister John Key, were urging a much more moderate approach to the language and the approach towards China and the understanding of, of you know the common interest that we have with China.
0: Yeah, and I think part of the reason why I think this is this is still kicking on um, post Trump is that Biden is still taking a pretty aggressive approach on on China. Mm, Maybe so for yes, his own yeah. reasons to, you know, make sure that the Republicans aren't on his back for being soft on on foreign policy. But I think it'll be interesting to see whether and if we see a meeting between Biden and Xi. That maybe cools things down. That would that would help a lot, I, I think. Hey, the other thing I'm just fascinated with in your wrap around this week is what's happening in India. In a really, really good piece by and Arundati Roy about the just the crisis in India. For me, that's yeah. been the the massive. St- you know, scary, tragic story of the last 10 days or so Yeah, often
1: generally. often what I try to do with this column is, is you know, I feel I feel as though the end of things has been very well reported you know, and and we're all sort of across it, but there are times, and I think Alan Rusbridger at The Guardian did this brilliantly back in the days of 9-11, when there are certain things that are so enormous that it requires a novelist um, or a creative writer to actually describe it in a way that journalism doesn't always quite manage, and yeah, Arundhati Roy really talks about the scale and the sort of the humanity of this crisis you know you've got wood running out now because of the of the funeral pyres you've got evidently you know, up to five or even six or seven times the number of dead that are actually being officially reported with COVID and certainly in the terms of cases. And so you've got this remarkable questioning of the Hindu nationalism of, of Narendra Modi and just the plain competence of, of Namodi. You know, she she's essentially saying, let me let me read quote from it. We're being sealed in with our virus and our Prime Minister along with all the sickness, the anti science, the hatred and the idiocy that he and his party and its brand of politics represent and yeah. you know this is you, you need this sometimes you need these kind of sweeping assertions and descriptions I think to truly get the scale and the true horror of what's really going on in a situation like that
0: yeah and Modi who seemed to be a, a sort of a Trumpy figure who couldn't be touched in India I remember those amazing scenes of him meeting up with Trump those uh, massive stadiums mm. full of expats in America that was genuinely popular I the, the one thing that's been going on there that I've been watching and actually seeing around Parliament here in Wellington is the amount of protests against his various agricultural reforms, yes, and of course the debacle which was the the currency switch a year or two ago, which again plays into that that area of competency. And interesting, obviously, there's a fallout for New Zealand and Australia and all of this, in that both of us have. Well, not quite banned entry, but certainly suspended it. And Australia actually went a lot further than we did. I asked Chris Hipkins probably four or five weeks ago now, would we ban flights from India to try and reduce the number of people coming mm. in? And initially said no. You know, we've got a lot of New Zealanders who are residents or citizens living or travelling in India who need to come back, and we can't, you know, it's against the law for us to, you know, uh, refuse to accept people yeah. coming in. yeah. So New Zealand has has very much played it down in saying, well, it's just a temporary thing,
1: you know, people can't. Come but of here. course, it became it became a ban by by default because most of the airlines stopped flying out of there. So exactly, it, you know, yeah. it was kind of convenient. But I, but I did find that the it, it you know there were a number of New Zealand commentators and po- some politicians who really questioned that that limitation on New Zealand letting New Zealanders come back from India, and I, I, that's gone very quiet. I mean, it, it it seemed to me as though the New Zealand High Commission, which of course had its own fiasco this week, was seeking oxygen mm. cylinders, had a very good sense of just how bad it was going to be and must have reported that back to the government. So yeah. it actually seemed like a sensible call in the end.
0: Yeah, and also uh, a bit more nuanced than what's happened in Australia, where uh, Scott Morrison has got himself into a lot of trouble by using a health order to ban people from coming from India to Australia, and not only that, imposing jail sentences. Mm. If, if you if you try to come through, and that's caused enormous outrage in the very strong and big Indian community in Australia, and two legal challenges in the federal court against mm-hmm. firstly the the ban, saying it's unconstitutional and unparliamentary because it didn't actually go through parliament. Parliament they used the health order to do it, mm-hmm. and secondly, there's also a a, a challenge under the federal. Court. and of course they have a constitution in Australia, so they can do the whole you know, American thing of challenging a law by appealing to the constitution, and saying that the Australians, and I don't think a lot of New Zealanders understand this, the Australians have actually banned Australians from leaving Australia.
1: Well. Yeah no that is a pretty extra I was thinking about that myself the other day because I was thinking of going going to Europe and seeing whether it might be feasible and of course yes you have to get you have to get an official government permit to leave the country it's, it sounds like something out of the 1970s when you used to have to get you know a uh, permit to take any money out or or to to do that so speaking of which Bernard shall we shall we look a little bit at the economy because oh, yeah. i think you know you've yeah, yeah. you've been addressing what i was very amused to see one of the trade union leaders in New Zealand describe this, which did surprise me, this decision by the New Zealand government to impose effectively a three-year wage freeze on most civil servants earning above $60,000. You know, he described that as 1970s economics, which was reminiscent, of course, of the kind of control. Free approach of Rob Muldoon, and you've been thinking about that this week.
0: Yeah, I was surprised too at the the strength of it. So I went to the press conference yesterday where Grant Robertson and Chris Hipkins, who's the public service minister, announced this freeze. It really came out of the blue, and it's quite strong. So you've got about 350,000 New Zealanders who are public servants, and nearly three-quarters of those people are earning more than the $60,000 threshold Mm. that's involved here. And obviously, is a really big chunk over a 100 that who are earning over a hundred thousand dollars. Now, those over hundred thousand dollars, they're completely frozen for three years. Between sixty thousand and a hundred thousand, you only get a pay increase if you have gotten an exception. And this is really surprised, I think, a lot of people who are natural supporters of the Labor Party and obviously behind the Labor government. And they're asking the question: What's this all about?
1: You yeah, know, what think... is what is it all about, Bernard? Because it sounds it's you know, it's a very unusual move for a Labour government at the height of its powers, with a relatively strong economy and with and with an extraordinary majority in Parliament, to kind of beat up on its own on its own people. What's what's going on?
0: Yeah, well, the the background here is that on Tuesday, Grant Robertson came out with a, a budget speech, a pre-budget speech, sort of setting out the strategy for what they were doing. And surprising to me and a few few people, he very much focused on the need to reduce debt. He's saying that New Zealand has you know borrowed a lot of money in the last 18 months around the COVID crisis and now is the time to repay debt. This is very much the same sort of language that Bill English used in 2011, 12, 13, in the wake of the global financial crisis mm. and the Christchurch earthquakes. And it's, it's it's a framing or a meme, if you like, that really resonates uh, with a whole bunch of people in politics and the bureaucracies here in New Zealand. Seeing New Zealand as this vulnerable, delicate flower of an economy at the bottom of the world that could be cast adrift by the... Nasty bond market vigilantes. If we
1: just—is that what it is, Bernard? Is yeah. it is it the treasury? Do you think? Absolutely. Is it the treasury it's, that's driving this? It's us?
0: ingrained into their DNA the idea that New Zealand's government should really have net debt at around about twenty to thirty percent of GDP. Now, at the, the worst point of the uh, uh, COVID crisis, the government was spending at a rate that would have taken it over fifty percent of GDP. Now, that's you know twice as much as the treasury wanted. But just got to step back a bit and look at how that compares with other countries. So mm. Australia is already at 50 percent GDP in terms of its net debt and America is at 100 percent and Britain of course well over 100 percent of GDP. Japan who is a perfectly functional and successful economy has net debt of 200 percent. Yeah in well of course they
1: have that they, they've got their own aging problem of
0: course. Yes yes and, and so New Zealand's in a really strong position to borrow more if it if it wanted. Yeah. Um we could actually put on an extra 30 40% of GDP and the global debt markets wouldn't bat an eyelid. In fact, we have such a strong a balance sheet position from a government point of view that Moody's and Standard & Poor's have just upgraded us to AAA. So this uh, surprises me that the government is that worried about debt that they're willing to impose a pay freeze.
1: Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem very intelligent politically at the moment as well. It seems like they're, you know, they're, as so many people have pointed out, they're kicking the people in the health sector and the education sector who've kept everything moving and been particularly, you know, in demand during COVID. It, it also seems a betrayal, or a, or not some, a betrayal, but a, but a switch. On the kind of role of government that that Grant Robertson imposed very very swiftly immediately after COVID, with I think it was what a 60 60 billion dollar COVID invest code of COVID relief package, it just it just seems very quick to be to be sort of pulling back so quickly.
0: Yeah, I think there might be something else going on here. We'll find out um, tomorrow when the details of the first fair pay agreements are released by the government. So mm-hmm. there is some talk that the government um, and the unions will come out with uh, quite a tough fair pay agreement. Remember, the background here is that in 1991, where the Employment Contracts Act, which was specifically designed to destroy the union movement, removed the whole wage setting system, the award system we had where wages were set across entire industries. Well, the fair pay agreements were initially talked about in the first term by Labor, but didn't make much progress because New Zealand First wouldn't let it. But now New Zealand First isn't there. The union movement have been very keen for the government to come up with a couple of fair pay agreements across particular sectors. Now, if they were able to, for example, impose a fair pay agreement across hospitality, you know, we're talking hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of workers, or retail, both of which have relatively low incomes, that have seen incomes rise perhaps faster than some other areas because so many of of the people working in those sectors are on the minimum wage. And we may well see, don't know, but I think politically the government has set the scene at yesterday and today by saying, hey, people in the public sector, all of those Chardonnay-swilling socialist bureaucrats drinking their triple shot lattes in Wellington
1: Mm -hmm. up. Chardonnay and (laughs) coffee, yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) at the same time, are going to take the pain and then we're going to do this fair pay agreement for people on lower incomes and that's going to hurt a lot of small businesses, a lot of natural National Party supporters who will suddenly have to pay a much higher wage. Mm. Uh, And that may be a factor there, but I actually think the guts of it is the DNA, the cultural DNA of Treasury and the bulk of the, the advisory Groups within government is very much about reducing debt. The- yeah, I think it's so maybe
1: put this in context, Bernard, because I was also struck. There, there was a column in the New Zealand Herald this week by Richard Preble, the former ACT, well, the founder of ACT and a mm-hmm. former Labour Party politician, describing Gavin, Gavin, sorry, describing Grant Robertson as the worst worst finance minister since Rob Muldoon. Is is it that, that Grant is actually trapped by, you know, held hostage by, by Treasury? And, and I wonder also what, if we're thinking about the international con- mm. context of this, is it all to do also with a fear of, of fear of revived inflation?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who think that the government needs to step back and, you know, reduce the fire into the economy by cooling things off a bit. Um, But remember, um, we've got interest rates down here at 0.25%. So, you know, if anyone's going to take the flame out, it should be the Reserve Bank as well. But there is no Mm. inflation problem. So everyone thinks, oh, the inflation is bound to come. But we don't have an inflation problem. We've got numbers this week, actually, on wage inflation showing just 1.6% per year wage inflation. But we have moment. a
1: we do have a productivity problem, don't we, Bernard? Anyway, yep. it's so fine to have low, low inflation, but we also have a low growth, low productivity problem. Exactly.
0: And one of the bits of feedback from the public sector and others in the last couple of weeks, and particularly after this pay freeze, is if you freeze pay, you're effectively freezing a price for labour. And uh, in the same way, uh, you know, a rent freeze is distorting in that it means people who were going to provide rental accommodation may not now because the, the price in the market is not allowed to clear the market. One thing you could see, and this is a risk for the government and for a lot of businesses, is that people who you know, maybe could have managed to um, extract a larger pay increase because there are mm-hmm. um, skill shortages in many parts of the economy, particularly in health and education, can now look around at other options, particularly now the Trans Tasman bubble is open, and the thing that's changed the balance between Australia and New Zealand, even over the last eighteen months, that makes it more attractive to go to Australia is not only do you have the thirty to forty percent higher wages in Australia, mm-hmm. but also housing costs in
1: yeah uh, in yeah no, it is pretty extraordinary that Sydney is not doesn't is is not as costly as Auckland.
0: That's right, and so rents, particularly around those CBDs, have dropped anything from 10 to 20% in the last 18 months. So if you're some sort of, you know, orderly junior doctor, some sort of specialist in medical services, or maybe some sort of uh, marketing or software person, you can easily get a job in Sydney or Melbourne. And if you're a New Zealand uh, resident, you you don't even have to ask. Go across there, immediately get a 40% pay increase. And... The disposable income you have after yeah. your rent is much higher, so that's one of the risks for the government here. Is not only do they piss off a, a strong supporter, political supporter in the union movement here, but also they, you know, they drive away a lot of skilled people and um, make it difficult for everyone to sort of continue to grow the economy. It'll be, I, I think, we'll find out tomorrow whether we get that fair pay agreement stuff. Whether it really, yeah, uh, but just is and but just
1: to talk a little bit more, Bernard, about the the context because I think you know Janet Allen's been talking about inflation mm-hmm. tapering this week in the, in the United States you've got markets still at pretty much dramatic highs although slightly off today with the decision that's affected pharmaceutical companies about making uh, about possibly you know sharing vaccine IP but generally, things are sort of full steam ahead i mean what 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 just maybe address for a minute the 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 global economy situation
0: well the thing the thing that's different between new zealand and the rest of the world particularly australia and america is that the central banks in australia and america are are doing something different to ours they are targeting what they call average inflation over the long run Mm -hmm. so what they're going to do is fire up the economy so it's generating quite a bit of heat and they want to see the whites of the eyes of actual inflation being quite strong before they look to tighten policy. And New Zealand um, is still sticking with its normal, you know, around two percent. Any sign that inflation is going over two percent, and I'll start to tighten. So that's different there. And secondly, in America, you're seeing massive deficit spending, and no, none of us talk about let's get debt down. You know? No, no. <laughs> you're seeing uh, Biden go out there and, and give out lots of cash, as Trump did. And also look to uh, spend $2 trillion on infrastructure. It remains to be seen whether that gets through the Senate. But certainly um, there's plenty of cash being pumped into those economies and they're not stopping. They're not pulling back. Unlike Grant Robertson, who this week is essentially saying, OK, we've, we've beaten off the... The potential depression. Now it's time to get back to normal.
1: Well, in yeah, it does seem it does seem a worry. New Zealand should be possibly. It seems to me, as a as a as a recent newcomer home, that it really really ought to be investing in some of these uh, issues of. Um, infrastructure and and development, not to mention things like the child poverty and the, the other issues that Jacinda Ardern has campaigned on.
0: Exactly. And in fact, New Zealand looks like it's sort of getting out of step, falling behind where the rest of the world's economic policymakers and thinkers are going. If you look at what the IMF, the OECD and the World Bank, not to mention the Fed, the US government, the Australian government are doing. They are all looking to use their uh, government balance sheets to borrow, to invest in infrastructure, education, uh, social services, welfare nets, to, to grow the economy and try to solve this productivity disaster, really, we've seen in the last 10 years, where an increasing amount of inequality has meant that a lot of people who are at the bottom of the, the spectrum have actually, you know, they've gotten their, their situation is worse, they've become less productive. And you're seeing, you know, one of the basic problems with global capitalism at the moment is that the bigger it gets, the richer the those that's, are. The that's top true, get. but
1: of course, you know, of course we've also taken I think it's one point four billion people out of poverty in the last in the last fifteen yeah, yeah, years, yeah. ten or fifteen years, most of them of course in China, which takes us yeah. back to where we started this <laughs> conversation.
0: Exactly. So I think New Zealand looks like it's sort of behind the curve on that. We'll find out. I mean, we we may be jumping at shadows a bit here because we haven't actually seen the budget yet. It's not out to the twentieth, and we'll get a clearer sense of whether the government's taking this a austerity approach. Yeah. one which even Boris Johnson isn't isn't doing. I mean, he abandoned austerity a year or so ago, and uh, and 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 there they're looking to you know increase the corporate tax rate. You know, they they are spending a bit more money, so we'll see where yeah, that, that plays out. So looking ahead to next week, the next ten days or so, you know, what are the What are the things that you'll be keeping an eye on that anyone who's trying to look over the horizon should should uh, keep an eye on because it's bubbling away and it could blow? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm increasingly
1: worried. I'm increasingly concerned about the possibility of an uptick, uh, a significant uptick in COVID cases in places that think they've got they're Mm. starting to get it sorted out. I cannot. I cannot, for the life of me, believe that there there isn't some hubris in this at the moment and that we're going to see some significant increases in, in COVID, particularly in the UK. I mean, obviously, they've done a brilliant job with, with the vaccination. But just this whole conversation about about how well they've done leads you to a kind of complacency. I think the same is maybe true in France. really interesting story out of Israel this week about which which is also deeply relevant to New Zealand because they too have used only the Pfizer vaccine and they found it extremely effective for avoiding reinfection. so you know that's that's a positive thing. I, th- I think also you know Taiwan Taiwan and china will will remain important in the week ahead.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that um, moderna came out overnight and said that it's mrna. Uh, vaccine mm. looks like it's quite effective against this horrible double variant that the that, that is ma- causing such grief in india at the moment which is good news but you're, you're right the longer it goes on where not everyone's vaccinated and it's tearing around the world the more risk there is of new variants that crop up that our vaccines can't can't handle the one thing that I'm sort of keeping an eye on it's sort of a fun thing but also it's weird really uh, <laughs> There's a dispute going on, obviously, between Britain and the EO, e, EU. Over, yes, f- over f- Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of the, the Jersey, you know, the Channel Islands as this sort of weird place in between England and France, you know, where people speak French and English. And, you know, it's closer to France than it is to England. And during the Second World Much, War, yeah, yeah the, the Germans invaded. <laughs> it seems like a weird sort of middle place. Well, the local Jersey authority <laughs> issued a bunch of fishing licences. Now that Britain's out of the EU, they can issue their own fishing licences. And these fishing licences basically said, um, if you're from France, there's a whole bunch of things you can't do. And the French are outraged and mm. um, threatening to cut off the power supplies <laughs> to Jersey. So yeah, Boris, Anything
1: is possible, I yeah, think. You know. yeah.
0: And Boris Johnson's basically sent a couple of frigates down to Jersey to, you know, warn off the French, which, I mean, who would have thought, you know, a couple of years ago when Britain was part of the EU, I I know there's the usual argy-bargy between the Brits and, you know, up yours to laws in France and all of that, yeah, this is, qu- <laughs> this is quite well, a
1: quite Well, argy is a very good expression to use, given the <laughs> Falklands, of course. It is it is a sort of weird return to a kind of nutso Daily Telegraph gunboat diplomacy, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and if you're wanting to distract people from your own problems where your, exactly. right, your right-hand man is just slowly leaking out all sorts of dirt, that's one way
1: to do it. Yeah. But, um, well, let, me, let me finish on a cultural front burner, because one sure. of the things that I've been – I'm a big fan of the American author Philip Roth. And he, the the authorised biography of Philip Roth, which is, I think, about an 800-page tome, which I had ordered and was desperately waiting for to arrive in the bookshop on Joe Voice Road, will never arrive now because <laughs> the book has been withdrawn by the publisher because its uh, its author his his authorised biography, Blake Bailey, draw, drew into him, well, as soon as he came out with, with the uh, announcement of the book, uh, quite a queue of women many of them his former students, as when he was an English teacher in New Orleans, have, have accused him of grooming them and then seeking sex with them and, in fact, having sex with them later on and being a sort of an arch manipulator. And he's accused, I think it is, of two specific rapes, one of which, rather extraordinarily, was of somebody who is now quite famous in the publishing industry and allegedly happened at the home of, of somebody from the New York Times Books Review. So, so it's, a, it's a rather extraordinary story. And it is, it's, you know, it probably goes a little bit further in a sense than some of the Me Too cases because it is, you know, really very specific crimes and, and rape, not just well, not necessarily to, to belittle harassment, but it is a demonstration of the power of a pattern of behaviour that the publisher was made aware of, but it still went ahead with the book and has really? now been forced to withdraw it. Wow. I, I find that a little bit of a pity in respect because. I was looking forward to the book, and I'm sure the book was brilliant. Although Philip, of course, Philip Roth, of course, had, you know, there was a, there was a view that he was somewhat misogynist, and that there was also a view in some of the reviews that Blake Bailey, the the biographer, had let Philip Roth off too easily. Yeah. And so there's this idea that they were, by by understanding each other too much, were complicit in a sense yeah. in each other's behaviour. Yeah. Well, wow.
0: I mean, this has been one of the big changes of the last um, three or four years—the whole um, Me Too movement and how sensitive people are about being on the wrong side of that, and how quickly they pull the trigger—and uh, it really is a big change. Oh well, there'll be other books. I hope that'll be something I'm keen to talk about. Hey, that was
1: fun, Peter. That was really good. Good. All right, Bernard. Well, let's let's shall we shall we sign off on this one and then and then talk separately. Yeah,
0: no, good stuff.
1: Hey, if anyone we'll, was we'll there, we'll have another go at
0: this. That's that's right. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much,
1: Peter Bale, uh, and I'm you, and you I'm too. Bernard Hickey. Cheers. Bernard Hickey.
0: catch you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye.